Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Alex McCaw, co-founder and CEO of Clearbit. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, Alex, you were also the co-author uh, of The Great CEO Within with uh, your, your co-author and, and CEO coach, Matt Mashari. What separates the great CEO coaches from the good CEO coaches? What, 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 have, what have you learned from Matt that's distinct from working with any other CEO coach? Well, that's tough for me to answer because I haven't had any other CEO coaches, but I suspect... It's about thinking through things from first principles. Matt actually ran a company in the, do- in the 90s in the dot-com boom, and it did fairly successfully and exited, but it was such a shit show that Matt afterwards took a step back and thought, you know, what could I have done better? And he basically researched everything he could find under the sun and became a world expert on management. Yeah. So, and you are also writing a management handbook based on some of the principles that you are instilling in your managers at Clearbit. Why don't you talk about the goals with, with that project, then we'll get into some of the specific segments. Yeah. Well, the goals are twofold. One are to improve management at Clearbit, and one to improve the world's management. I'm a massive believer in management. I think it's one of the most underutilized, overlooked sources of leverage in the world today. And if you think about leverage. What does that mean? Well, leverage means it affects a large amount of people or there's a big outcome from something. And also leverage is about making a a small change can have huge impact, right? So let's think about management. If you think through your management experience, have you ever had an amazing manager? Uh, Yes. And would you say they changed your life? Yeah, professionally, I would say, yeah, they were immensely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like having that incredible teacher. Yeah. And they, they will always, they will have such a big impact on your life and you will always remember that impact. And what's sad is that incredible managers are pretty rare. And most of us have a manager and our manager actually dictates a lot of our experience at the company. They, um, essentially are the conduit between you and the company. And if that experience is bad or off, then you're going to leave that company. So that is, it's, it's extremely important to get that right. And the issue is, how do people become managers? How do you, how do you think they become managers? Sort of working their way up the, uh, the, the ladder, performing, uh, and then getting that's, that's right. So you're a highly effective individual contributor, and then you get promoted into management. And I say promoted in, in air quotes. Because it's actually a completely different job. And no one gets trained for it. And there's very little resources out there. If you ask people, what is the uh, best book on management? They'll probably say High Output Management, which was written 20 years ago. There's, there's nothing modern written that essentially, that at least I could find that suited my needs. And I learned so much building Clearbit. Clearbit's now 100 people. Or so, and I learned so much over the last five years that I wanted to distill it into a book. Yeah. Well, I guess there's two questions here. One is how has management changed since Andy Grove's book 20 years ago? Uh, or how should that book be re-updated today based on how times have changed? Um, and then I want to get into what separates the, the good from the, the great to life changing in terms of some management principles. So I think the massive change has been the intellectual uh, revolution where you now have creative workers. If you look through Andy's book, a lot of the analogies he, he uses are this uh, factory, you know, this conveyor belt. And that's definitely used to be the case during the industrial age that you wanted people to do exactly what you told them to do and not think creativity. But today, that's all different. Like you have a small number of highly talented people, most of them engineers who are programming, and each of them has a lot of leverage, and they all need to demonstrate a lot of creativity to get to whatever outcome you want to get to. And so you actually have to treat them very differently than if you were treating, say, a factory worker who you wanted 
them to do exactly what you want it, want them to do. So that has all sorts of knock-on effects. Like transparency is one of the biggest ones. Like when you're running a factory, you don't want to be transparent with your workers. You don't want them thinking about anything else other than working. Now, if you're running a, a team of creatives, you want to be as transparent as possible for two reasons. First is the more transparent you are, the more they're going to trust you. And that trust breeds creativity. Uh, and the second reason is that you want as many minds as possible working on your hardest problems. And if you are not transparent about whatever those are, then they can't work on those problems. Yeah. And do you think it's even different than it was like you know, Keith, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when Keith Boy was at PayPal and, and sort of uh, building some of his management principles that have then, you know, been descended into the next generation of founders in the Valley? I think Keith's management principles are incredible and I've incorporated a bunch of them into the book. In fact, I've got um, his permission to reproduce um, a bunch of his talks and writings on the subjects. I would say our slant on management differs in such that it brings in the emotional component to management. I think that whether we like it or not, we have these emotions and it is better to try and integrate them in a productive fashion to to whatever we're doing rather than just try and pretend they don't actually exist. Yeah. Speak for yourself in terms of having emotions, Alex. <laughs> the um, so what separates the the good managers from the from the fantastic or, or, or life changing managers? Well, a lot of managers want to be good. They just I don't think they're being quite proactive enough about it, and I don't think they have the resources or the help. If the company demonstrates that it doesn't really care about management training, then it's going to send the wrong message to the managers. You know, if the, if the manager's experience is that one day they were an individual contributor and the next day they were a manager and that's it, they're just expected to be a manager, then the message to the manager is, hey, this, this is the same business as usual. Just continue doing what you were doing. Uh, and there's such a recipe for disaster because management is so different to being an IC. Now, if you think about what makes you successful as an IC is... Uh, high output, being successful um, through your own work, right? And actually what makes you successful as an individual contributor actually will not make you successful as a manager. A lot of um, managers in early on in their careers, they will end up uh, doing what I call heroing, which is when they start doing the work themselves. And that's a recipe for disaster. You need to make sure that your team is doing the work and you are enabling your team but there's a huge, huge number of, of amount of facets to what I think is gonna is an amazing manager, and we we can we can cover those. Um, yeah, let's get into some of them. I'll have what are the categories, and then we'll dive into specifics. Yeah. So the key thing is to start with is you've got to manage yourself well first. And there's this saying on on the airplanes and the safety videos where they say you got to fix your mask before helping others. I kind of like that when it comes to management. Like, how are you going to manage other people unless you are physically and mentally healthy? So this management handbook, the first chapter is all about managing yourself. It's about managing things like your physical health, your mental health. It includes some mental models for taking radical responsibility for everything in your life, including your emotions. Um, and then it's got some practical advice around how to do time management. Yeah. You're a big believer in conscious leadership. If I had to summarize, it's like a mix of seven ha habits of highly effective people meets nonviolent communication meets like some Buddhism <laughs> meets like the, uh, the uh, Andy Grove book. Or how, how would you sort of sum uh, summarize or characterize it for someone who's not familiar? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of people have been driving towards the same ideas. And if you read the book Principles by Ray Dalio, it's all about this stuff. It just... Principles just doesn't include any emotions at all. Um, and that's what I like about the CLG work. They've got the stuff I love from principles, but also they actually acknowledge that we have these emotions and then they give you tools for how to deal with them. And CLG is basically about taking radical responsibility for everything in your life. Um, like I said, including your emotions, realizing that no one can actually make you feel anything. It is, it is your choice to feel a feeling and taking responsibility for that. And it's about 
living creativity and just having creativity flow through you. You know, there's a concept in CLG called above and below the line. And when when below the line, the, the lizard brain has got its, you know, claws in us and we are angry and we are defensive and we are committed to being right. And when we're above the line, we are creative and that's where we find the best ideas. And it's really important that you understand what state you're in at any given time. And we oscillate between these states throughout the whole day. And when you, when you are in a meeting and you're discussing some problem, it's much more important to think about context than content. You want to first think about actually, where am I? How do I feel? Am I in that creative mode or in the defensive mode? And then once you realize where you are, then you can, you, you can f- switch that if you're below the line. Um, and there's a number of exercises for doing that. Yeah. I'm curious of a couple of friends. One is how you think about transparency in terms of what's your assess for what to share, what not to share. There's a lot of sort of critique about vulnerability that people are often vulnerable when it makes them look good as opposed to vulnerability when it makes them look bad. And then also just dealing with the cognitive dissonance of being a founder in terms of trying to stay grounded in reality when you are often sort of pitching or presenting things that are, you know, future oriented. And so managing that cognitive dissonance. That's a great question. So you're right. People use vulnerability for virtue signaling, like they use practically everything in in this city. Here's my rules for vulnerability and transparency. You know, you've got to be, you got to be authentic and you got to have your people, your, your group of people that you're vulnerable with. You know, I'm not vulnerable on Twitter. Um, I'm not vulnerable with venture capitalists I meet. Um, I don't need to be vulnerable with them. I've, I've got an amazing group of friends that I can be vulnerable with. And the same goes for transparency. Playbit doesn't have to be transparent with the rest of the world. Internally, though, we are transparent about as much yeah. as we can be. The only major two things that we're not transparent around are performance and comp. And performance, if you're transparent around performance, you can essentially get into exercises of public shaming. And public shaming is something that is really hard to actually do effectively. Um, I think maybe companies like Bridgewater are the only ones that actually get by with that. Um, And then compensation, that's that's someone's personal issue. You know, a lot of people don't want their comp to be discussed. Even within the company. Even within the company. So those those are the two things that we aren't transparent about, but practically everything else we are transparent about. You know, some of the transparency at Clearbit is uh, incredible. So we do these uh, quarterly leadership offsites. We will write about 25 pages of notes and ideas. Um, We'll give each other uh, feedback. I like that. I wish that. We'll talk about anger, sadness, fear, joy, excitement, and we'll put it all in the Google Doc. And we will give it to the whole company. And we are, we, on the leadership team, we have um, a commitment that we will take feedback publicly. We don't expect the rest of the company to do that, but we will uh, publish our critical feedback. And it just helps us improve. The other day, I had a 360 and I sent it to the whole company because I want to show them that I'm on this mission of uh, self growth, self improvement. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to get into hiring. Uh, you, you've been thinking a lot about, you know, you built Sourcing.io, you know, five years ago. You've, you've been thinking about sourcing candidates, how to build a hiring organization. M- maybe let, let's start there. How do you advise companies or think about Clearbit building a super strong top of funnel sourcing machine? And then we can get to evaluating. Sounds good. Well, I would say even before you start sourcing, the, the secret to hiring well is the prep work. And often companies don't do any. And so this means that they don't know how to evaluate candidates. Candidates come in and they're all evaluated differently. And so there's no way to compare them. So before you even start sourcing, what you should do is create a role proposal. And this includes, first of all, a justification of why you want to spend $100,000 to $200,000 hiring someone. And this should be the last resort. And then, and then it contains what we call a, a, a scorecard. So these are the attributes that you are looking for in the candidate um, and how much they matter. And this lets you take each candidate and 
you can score them by the same criteria. And once you get to the interview stage, you can split up the interviews that are looking for some of these specific items on the scorecard. To get to your question about sourcing, there is one secret to sourcing that I have found. And unfortunately, I only found it a few years into Clibit's history. You asked me about sourcing probably because it's one of the hardest parts of the whole puzzle, right? And the thing is, if you don't have a good enough top of funnel, then you end up compromising at the bottom of the funnel. So you've got to make sure that you have a steady flow of candidates. Now at Clearbit, we expect every manager to run this whole process themselves. So we expect them all to source their own candidates. And while we tell them, hey, look, this can be dull at times, it is a lifelong skill. And if you can get good at it, it's a superpower. If you look at the people who founded Benchmark, they were a bunch of recruiters. So we say to them, get good at this and your career will absolutely flourish. If you're a manager and you're amazing at hiring people um, for your team, then, then your own career is going to flourish as well. So how do, we, how do we suggest they go about sourcing? We, we do these things called sourcathons. So we will gather together maybe five people in a room for an hour, and we try and choose the most apt people for whatever role we're trying to close. And we will essentially ask them to scour through their LinkedIn, um, their Twitter. I actually have a bunch of scripts that I've written for this. So, you know, we're a data company. One of the benefits of that is that I can use that data to, to help find new people. But we will go through all these candidates and and create lists, add them to a spreadsheet. And then also at the end of that meeting, we'll um, reach out, see if we can get a introduction. It works so, so well. It's um, it's amazing. And it, it's, it works pretty much every single time. You know, when we have had roles like, for example, product managers are exceptionally difficult to find. Um, and we hadn't found one for like six months we had just an emergency sourcing meeting where the entire leadership sat down and sourced and we had a product manager. I think we had five come on site the next couple of weeks through that. Meeting. Well, let's, let's talk about the interview uh, process itself. So you've, you have different kinds of interviews that, that you recommend in the management handbook or, or that you, that you screen for. What, what do the great interview orgs like, like Clearbit do? How do you think about it? So the key thing is to, to treat it like a scientific experiment. Now, if you were to, trying to get some results from a scientific experiment, what do you do? Well, you keep the testing criteria the same each each iteration, right? You have a control group and you also keep the, the testing criteria the same. It's exactly the same in hiring. You want to make sure that these candidates are asked the same questions in the same order and you're evaluating them on the same thing so you can compare them. There is... One interview that we do that is fairly rare in the Valley, but I think it is so, so valuable. You know, there's only so much that you can actually ascertain during you know, a day on site. So often it is possible to make mistakes, even though you think you've run a fantastic process. So how do you actually get around that? Well, there's something called a top grading interview. And the idea behind the top grading interview is that past performance is indicative of future performance, which is like a fairly simple uh, idea. But often we, we don't really dig into past performance well enough when we're doing interviews. So a top grading interview is about an hour and it goes through your last five jobs. And the, there are about six or seven questions that we ask for each job to try and ascertain what were they hired to do, what were their priorities, did they accomplish them, what were their weaknesses during that job, and then who do they work with, and then we do reference checks with all those people. We also ask them to rate, we ask them what their managers for their last five jobs would rate their performance out of 10, um, and that's r really interesting um, because people at that point, they know you're going to do those reference checks, so they're honest with you. Yeah. Is there any other thing that's important to think about in terms of what makes a great reference check? Well, we do two types of reference checks. We do reference checks of people the candidate has given us and people the candidate hasn't. And if a reference check is referred by the candidates, 
voluntarily, then you can be sure then that person will say good things about the candidate. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been referred. Um, but they're still useful to do. But the, the really, really useful ones are uh, with people that the candidate hasn't directly referred, like, for example, their, their bosses at these previous companies, you know. Uh, maybe the candidate will introduce you to them, but it's not like some, someone that the candidate would necessarily pick or not yeah. pick. One side note, by the way, since so many references are redundant in nature, I wondered, could there be a startup that does like B2B, you know, references and gets data on, you know, Eric, and then, you know, companies can pay for that data or something like, you know, you run a data company, you're interested in hiring. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's an interesting idea. The thing about people in tech always have recruitment startup ideas because they're faced with these recruiting problems. They don't realize that the market is actually tiny and it's just a bunch of other tech startups. And if you want to build a recruitment startup, you're much better uh, served by building a startup for farm laborers. There's there's a lot more low-skilled people who are looking for jobs rather than uh, the upper echelons. I will will leave you with this one idea for um, reference interviews. Ask them, was, was there ever a time that you and the candidate disagreed on something and how did you resolve that disagreement yeah and what would uh what answer are you looking for or not looking for there well you know they're lying if you, they said you never disagreed you're looking for um open-mindedness you're looking for resolution of, of disagreements in a productive manner yeah and and i would segue into values and culture and how you assess that one sort of open question that do you are you into the big five at all uh, when you because i don't mind as much we don't actually use that. No, we do use something called Enneagrams internally, but we, it's not part of our interview process. Yeah. You use it as a way to uh, understand understand different people and how they like to work to be honest? It's been incredible for us. I don't know. Have you done your Enneagram? Uh, no. It may seem a little far-fetched and woo-woo. Um, and look, I'm as scientific as they come. I'm a, I'm a total atheist, but... Enneagrams for us have just been a game changer. And I, I can talk about that. There, there are nine different Enneagrams, and essentially you have a preference or a strength in one of these nine. And then there are there's ways that the, the Enneagrams interact with each other. But by knowing our Enneagrams, we, we, ask, we ask everyone to do that Enneagram and stick it in the company wiki. It's been a game changer. And so is it like, hey, we shouldn't put a three and a six together because they might... Those are just sample numbers because they might get in a fight or we should pair a four and a seven together because they work well together. What's an example of how it's game changing? No, it's more um, about interactions and resolving conflicts. It's like when a manager is giving feedback, it's much easier to know what someone's Enneagram is and then give them that feedback. They can curate that, customize that feedback. They also know what is someone's core motivation in life. A lot of my... um, leadership team are threes and the three is the overachiever and the uh, and the three's core want in life is to be needed and wanted and so threes need a lot of uh, external gratification they need a lot of praise so just knowing that is one of their core motivations helps me better manage them yeah that makes sense and uh, you do think about conflict resolution more, more broadly what, what are your thoughts there or principles yeah so so there's a few few different types of conflicts. There's a tactical issue, and that means that something is about to go wrong, and that generally is a decision that is hiding as an issue. Um, there's a performance-related issue. That means something went wrong, and feedback needs to be given. And then there's an interpersonal um, issue, which is two people that are a lot at loggerheads with each other. Yeah. And interpersonal ones tend to be the hardest ones to resolve, but there is one secret, one main secret to resolving these conversations. So generally when two people, I'm doing air quotes again, hate each other, it's actually because they're not hearing each other. And if you get them in a room and you get them essentially repeating back what the other person's saying, it can resolve so many conflicts just like that. Yeah, totally. Uh, I want to get on to management and evaluating is there anything else on hiring that you want to make sure the audience uh audience knows about how you think about hiring differently at at clearbit i would my passing thought is that you haven't closed the hire once they've signed the contract you haven't closed the hire once they've joined your company 
you only really close the hire once they've been at your company for 90 days and they're onboarded. So having a fantastic onboarding process is a really important part of that hiring. And what makes a great onboarding process? Well, the, the, the first thing is that, that 30, 60, 90. So you ask them to put together that 30, 60, 90. Hopefully it reflects your original scorecard for the role. But 30, 60, 90 is essentially what you expect them to do in 90 days. And it should be quantifiable. And every week you're checking in, you're doing your one-on-ones, and you can see how they're progressing against that. So it's very easy for you to tell if they're working out or not. And I think one of the most important aspects of a good 306090 is a quick win. Like they should be shipping something on week uh, one or two. Um, and I say shipping, even if they're in something other than engineering, they should be uh, involved in a ship of some sort. They should be involved in a closed deal or something yeah. like that. Totally. And it's important also you write that, while running through this process that you're also selling and, and pitching at the same time. What, what do great interview processes do in terms of incorporating uh, closing uh, as well? Pitching and closing. Well, the key to closing is not to make it a negotiation. It's like a marriage. You should only ask them to, if you know, should only give them a job offer when you know they're going to accept it. Right. So essentially you get to the point of the interview where you want to give them the offer and you say to them, if we give you X, Y, and Z, would you accept? Um, And as soon as they say yes, you actually give them the offer. But the thing is, it's not a negotiation. At Clearbit, we don't have room to negotiate. We have a system. You know, we have very structured system to try and make everything as fair as possible. And so people coming in hoping for a negotiation uh, or expecting one, uh, I you usually disappointed, and uh, and and the key thing is just to make sure that's obvious from the get go that just is not a negotiation. Right. Let's talk about comp a little bit. Uh, Zach Cantor has this tweet: you, uh, "Startup comp is simple. Either become the best in the world at identifying mispriced assets, or convince incredible people to work for less, or pay top of market, or build a mediocre team." He says everyone thinks they're doing the first two. Becoming best in the world and identifying mispriced assets or convincing impeccable people to work for less, but they're really doing three and four, i.e. paying top of market or building a mediocre team. Uh-huh. Would you edit anything there? How do you think about startup comp? How should startups think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think you just do things at different stages. Yeah. As, you know, at our stage, we're definitely paying more than we used to. And um, we are affording some really awesome people because of that. Yeah, and you're saying at the beginning, it's, identifying mispriced assets you're going to yes um and uh like everyone else i i do believe i i'm good at that um but i think the key to identifying people with high potential a don't don't really care about credentials and you know especially in early early on in someone's career go to the luminaries of the of your of whoever is in the field like the the experts and then just ask them who the up-and-comers are because yeah. they, they know who they are yeah Totally. And I'm building a separate product cosign around that. So I definitely believe in that. Startup comp principles, more, more generally, you mentioned it, it, you keep it private. Any other principles that people should be thinking about when creating comp bands or thinking about what good startup comp looks like? Good structures, systems? I'm not sure we have a particularly intelligent way of doing it. We just got market data and there's various companies you can buy this from and we pay 75th percentile. Yeah. Cool. Let's talk about management. You think a lot about meetings, are the most important meetings, the one-on-one and the all-hands, different kinds of meetings, and then what makes a great version of those meetings? What's important there? Yeah. So as a manager, your most important meetings are the one-on-ones, um, and I think they should be highly structured. When I'm interviewing managers, I ask them how they do one-on-ones. I hear so much waffling, yeah. and uh, people are like, Oh, it's, it's, you know, my reports meeting and let them talk about whatever they want. I say, no, like, sure, they can talk about what they want, but you have half an hour and you should try and make that as productive as possible. So I have a, I have a full system for running a one on one and we, we actually run ours out of Asana. A lot of it is prepared for. So an update every week is prepared for by your report usually surrounding their OKRs with good and bad in there. Any issues they want to talk about are brought up beforehand and have a proposed solution. And we just 
put them as tasks in Asana in the one-on-one project. Any topics are brought up beforehand and have a good description. So you can imagine what the one-on-one is like. You get in there at the start, you ask them, what's the best part of the last week? Again, that kind of grounds people and builds that relationship. Then you read their update in silence. Because it's text, the information transfer is highly efficient. And you, you get through this thing pretty quickly. You can ask any questions you want. And then the key thing is to get through those issues they have brought up as quickly as possible. You should be making decisions really, really fast on those, especially if the proposed solution looks good, just say yes. And then talk about any topics that they want to talk about. That's where the creativity happens. So you can see how having this structure up front actually leaves more room for this open-ended creativity. And then the last thing, or the, the penultimate thing, is you ask them, what are the top three things that are most important to get done by this time next week? And you don't tell them what those things are. You ask them what those things are. And then you, once they tell you, you create those tasks in Asana. You set the due date on them and the, you put their face on them. And they're, they're what we call impeccable agreements. They have to get done by that time next week. And you are basically your team's accountability partner. Um, and the, your team... Your, your reports know that there's going to be this accountability cadence that every week you're going to be checking in, making sure they did what they said they were going to do. Because at startups, it's so easy to get distracted and not work on the most important thing. And then the last part of the one-on-one is the feedback. And it has to be mutual. Um, it's extremely important to get it right. We do feedback every single week. Uh, the benefit from an employee's perspective is that they, ha- they know they're standing. They know if they're doing a good job or not. They're, not. they're not in the dark. They also know how to do a better job. And then the uh, the benefit from the manager is that they can actually Im- improve that their reports and help them grow and also help nip in the bud anything that uh, could cause issues and spiral out of control if it wasn't nipped in the bud really quickly. Um, and comp- I see companies do feedback so badly. There's uh, this amazing book, Radical Candor. It's all about being candid with you when you're giving feedback. It's like, yeah. what you know, what most companies do is they have ruinous empathy. I've even seen aspects of this at Clearbit where I will take managers' feedback and I will rewrite it to remove the ruinous empathy so they can see the difference. Yeah. Um, but also, What's an example or what's ruinous empathy or, or what does it look like when it's better? Well, for example... I was looking at some feedback last week. The manager was like, when we do 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 So first of all, they, they say we. Like, no, when you do this. Like, don't, don't use the word we in there. And then they will put all sorts of pacifying words in there, uh, little weasel words to try and make the person feel better. Don't do that. That just dilutes the message. In fact, you, you want to do the opposite. So the way we do feedback at Clearbit is there's a simple structure. So you say, when you do da 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 and that is, a, you know, whatever that is, has got to be a fact. Yeah. So when you, when you don't test your PRs, I feel fear. So anger, sadness, fear. I feel emotion. Because the story in my head is that you don't care about testing, that more bugs are going to f- get into our code, that our customers are going to churn, and ultimately, the company is going to fail. So you you really dig deep into your fear and, and just lay it on the table. And you also talk about unequivocal truths. You know, the, the extrapolation of a bug to the company failing is a story in your head. It is not a fact. And so someone can't argue with that. If you put it like that as, you know, this is a story I'm telling myself. They can't argue with the fact that you're telling yourself that story, right? So that's how we do feedback. Yeah. How about all hands? What makes a great all hands? Well, all hands should mostly be about celebration. And there should be some limited data transfer, information sharing there. Um, it's it's mostly rah-rah. Yeah. Again, it depends on your company size. You know, early days, we used to do company updates from across the leadership team. And these days, we actually just have a theme yeah uh, we do it every week and i generally generally emcee it but it is generally stuff that the whole company needs to know 
and it gets them excited. There are better ways of disseminating information than aren't through all hands, and, and it gets boring, especially if the information isn't relevant to a large part of the company. Yeah. What makes great OKRs versus what, what do people make mistakes? When, how do people do OKRs suboptimally? So I'm not sure I'm an expert at OKRs. I think we've messed it up a few times at Clearbit. But I'll tell you about a new system we're using. I'll, I can come back in a year's time and tell you if it actually works. But we use a system called the Pyramid of Clarity that was designed by Asana. And if you think about it, Asana are probably the best at OKRs. Because, you know, they run a project management tool, right? So we were lucky enough to have one of the really early people at Asana who essentially built the company called Kenny Van Zandt as an early investor. And he came around and, and we got chatting. And I was telling him about all the internal communication problems we were having, teams stepping on each other's toes and things. And he said to me, Alex, you don't have a communication problem. You have a planning problem. Like, that's synonymous. If you... If you solve planning, then you solve communication, which I thought was really interesting. And then he showed me the Pyramid of Clarity. And the Pyramid of Clarity is very similar to a classic OKR system, except there's a few key differences. It starts out with a mission. So this should be something simple that you could stitch on a, on a pillow. But it's why you do what you do, why you get out of bed. Then you've got your strategies. So maybe there's three different strategies to get to the mission. And then you have your company-wide objectives, and then what you do is you get each team to write key results against those company-wide objectives. And then you don't have any inheritance. So OKRs don't inherit from OKRs. And what what, mean, what ends up happening is you get a pretty long list of, uh, I think we have about six objectives this year and about 30 or 40 key results. Um, and that is a long list. But the nice aspect of this is you can see it all in one page in one Asana project you can see all of these things. You know the entire status of the company. Because when people don't have clarity, they're often asking, what is that team over there doing? You know, yeah. I don't trust. I don't trust they're actually working. Yeah. And if anyone says that to me now, I'm just like, here is the Asana board. You can see what everyone is working on and you can see the status of all those projects. Yeah. And I guess, how do you think about common management mistakes? That's something you've, you've written a bit about and, and how do you overcome them? Yeah. There are some common ones that I see time and time again. And the first one is heroing. We alluded to that earlier. This is doing your team's work on behalf of them. And generally, people do this for a few reasons. One, outwardly, they're trying to appear kind. You know, their, their team's overloaded and they need some help. And number two, secretly, they think they can do the work better. And what happens over time is the more you you hero, two things happen. The first is that you start resenting your team. And the second is that your team doesn't ever learn. And actually, to get a proper delegation system working, you need an error rate baked into it. Like, if you think that you are the perfect person to do the work, and you might actually well be like, better than anyone on your team to do that work, but if you just do that work every day, and you never delegate it, then your team are never going to learn. So you need to have a, an expected failure rate baked in when you're handing off that work to your team. Um, and there's a whole framework for how you manage this called task relevant maturity, which is quite interesting. But that's the main that's the main issue is that the people hero. Um, and and I'm asked like sometimes like is it okay to hero? You know we're a startup, we have limited resources. I say. It is okay to hero in certain circumstances, but you have to make it really apparent that's what that's what you're doing. Yeah. So you say you say to your team member, "Hey, I'm going to hero you just this once," and then you're and then you're on your own. And um, and I've done that before, especially with key hires. But ultimately, my senior team need to learn how to do their own hiring. So that's the first one, heroing. Uh, the second one is not prioritizing hiring. Uh, you know, at, at, at Clearbit, our leadership team have been at the company for about five years now. They were the, the first people to join the company, which is pretty incredible that we still have the same leadership team five years in. And it, it just shows the self-growth vehicle that we've created that they can grow with the company. Now, one of the issues that we saw early on, especially as you're migrating individual contributors to managers and eventually leaders, um, is they are not prioritizing hiring the you know, swamped. And 
they're doing a bunch of IC work. What ultimately this means is you're just going to get more and more buried over time. So you have to put a pause in the IC work. Things at the company have to be broken for a while. Get on that hiring, fix the problem for the long term. There's two more common management mistakes. The first is not acting fast enough when someone isn't working out. We uh, Clearbit have we delayed firing people in the past, and it's always been a mistake. Yeah. Uh, if someone's not working out, they're not going to work out. You know, treat them with respect on the way out. Help them find a new position somewhere else, but don't dilly dally. And then the last common management mistake is ruinous empathy. It happens time and time and time again. And you are just doing your team a disservice. You know, you, you're giving bad feedback in order to make people feel better. But actually, if you end up firing these people because your feedback wasn't good enough and they never actually learned and changed, then like, who are you serving then? You know, they would much rather you be real with them. Let's go back to your, you know, your one-on-one example. Let's say that you're, you're giving me the exact feedback you gave, which is you have fear that, uh, you know, I don't care enough to do the bugs and that's going to hurt the company. W- what's a good answer to that versus bad, is a bad answer? Hey, I'm making excuses or I'm saying, well, you didn't do this. Like w- what sort of response are you looking for versus, versus not looking for in terms of responding to feedback? Yeah. You're looking for ownership. You're not looking for excuses. You're looking. For signs that someone understands how serious something is, uh, you're looking for a growth mindset. You know, if you're giving feedback, the same feedback three times in a row, you should probably put them on a performance improvement plan, honestly. Yeah. And what makes a, a, a great performance improvement plan? And let me ask you, at the times that you've given performance improvement plans, what percentage? Is it 10%? Is it 30%? You know, don't get fired. Oh, yeah. Well, I wish it was higher. It's probably about 10%. Uh, people put on pips, don't get fired. The key thing for a performance plan is it's got to be genuine. Yeah. You generally want to improve their performance yeah. and you want them to come off the performance plan. So we have very structured performance plans. You, we have set goals to hit within set times. It's you know up to you if you want to do that or not. Um, like I said, we're... Uh, if you don't work out at Clearbit, no, no biggie. You know, there's lots of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, we'll help you find a job somewhere else. Um, we also, our severance package works that you just get a, a month that every year that you're at Clearbit. It doesn't matter if you voluntarily leave or if you're fired, uh, you get, you get that month. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about running uh, group meetings? Maybe small product sessions or, 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 or small. Uh, meetings that are in between the one-on-one and, and all hands, what, what makes a great meeting or what are mistakes people make running meetings? The mistakes that people make are not preparing. Yeah. And the mistakes that they make are information transfer over voice. A, a meeting should be pre- prepared for and an uh, updates, especially recurring meetings, updates should be written prior to the meeting and then you should spend the first five to ten minutes of the meeting just reading these updates. You know, someone has to crystallize their thoughts into an update that their thoughts are just going to get better and better. And it's much faster for you to read than talk about something. So that's um, one of the one of the main things. The other thing is just having a meeting owner, like an MC, who's going to move people along, adjudicate, uh, and generally help proceedings. We also have a note taker. And that is different from the meeting owner, mostly because we only have one information processor in our brain for language and if someone is writing notes then they can't effectively mc a meeting um, so we have we have a separate uh, person doing that but the key, the key thing is is like i said earlier it's very similar to the one-on-one so you have uh, updates from everyone read and silence at the start of the meeting you have issues and proposed solutions and again these are just all tasks in asana and every meeting has a project in asana and then you have topics, which are open-ended discussion topics. And then you have next actions. And it's important for the meeting owner to keep people accountable to their next actions. So if something gets decided or some piece of work gets decided in the meeting, then whoever is responsible for that has to get that done by the next meeting. Yeah. And what about uh, whether a meeting should happen in the first place? What's your litmus test for that? People are often, hey, I want, let's propose a meeting. Let's have a conversation about this. Yeah. It's a problem. You know, whenever I see massive meetings, I'm very skeptical and I, and I try and kill them because 
Some some people actually like meetings. I don't understand these people, but they tend to waste everyone else's time. And you want to make sure that the meeting is is a last resort. A lot of things can get figured out over a Google Doc or over even just a Slack message or an email thread. You don't need to pull in everyone for a meeting, you know. Yeah. One, one of the biggest issues with meetings is in companies where they reward FaceTime. And there are cultures, for example, Google's, where the way you get further in the company is by ingratiating yourself to the executives. So how do you do that? You get FaceTime. How do you get FaceTime? You add them to a meeting. And then you just have frivolous meetings that are only there to advance your own career. Do you agree with Keith or Boy's framing of there are barrels, this is called ammo? Like, mm-hmm. uh, Do you agree with that idea of interpreting talent? Yeah, I do like it. My preferred one is the rocks and the rock stars. Mm-hmm. We did an analysis recently at Clibit and went through all the high performers and tried to look at traits uh, that they share between them that we could potentially look for in the uh, hiring process in the future. And they were all either rocks or rock stars. So rocks are good performers. They're very dependable. They just get stuff done. They care about their craft. They're not hard to manage. Rock stars are generally a bit more prima donnas, but they tend to be really talented and worth the management cost. And then everything in between those things is not one. Yeah, that makes sense. When founders come up to you and say, Hey, how should I think about building culture at, at my new company? What, uh, what's the, what's the most common advice that you give them? Or what's, what's the best way to even think about culture? Is culture something that's created indirectly by good systems and processes or? That's a tricky one. It's like asking someone how, uh, should I go about building a church? You know, it's, it's something that's organic that you actually don't have much, uh, control over. It just happens. And there are some things you can do to push it in ways that you want it to be pushed. Um, but it's something you have to be so careful about. Ultimately, I think that the culture often reflects the founders. Mm-hmm. And so they, they kind of build the company they want to build. You know, And there are some things you can do um, to help your culture along. And ultimately, culture is a lot about improving trust between groups of people and having shared values. And if you have shared values, then you can collaborate on something even if you um, you don't have much interaction. And this is getting more and more important as companies uh, are remote. You know, at Clibit, we are half remote and half the company is distributed across the country and half of us are in San Francisco. How do you make a, a culture where, you know, half people are here and half people are there? It's really, really difficult. You know, there's, there's certain things that we do. For example... We throw land parties um, every uh, month. We do a Counter Strike land party where the, a lot of the company will get involved and um, play games with each other. We also pay for people to come to the office every quarter. We also do some really awesome offsites. We went to Tulum twice, and uh, we went to Colombia, and so those things those things work, especially early on in the company history uh, or in the, co- the company's history when you are a smaller company. You can uh, do some of those uh, crazier offsites, or at least in, in terms of location. So it's really about getting people together, letting them having shared experiences together, and bonding. And then they'll build trust. How do you measure managers' performance? So there are a number of ways of me- measuring a manager's performance. Chiefly, the output, you know, how well is um, their team doing, and I, I view it in terms of managerial leverage, which is something I stole from Keith. But it's essentially like how well are you doing given the, your resources you have? Like essentially what is my investment returning on you as a manager? There are some other ways of testing it. One way of testing it is through the Gallup 12 questions, which are a set of questions that Gallup put together that essentially tests how attentive an employee is or like how integrated an employee is and some of the questions are around uh, esteem needs and then some around self-actualization so a question might be do i know what's expected of me at work do i have the materials and equipment i need to do my work right right and and then maybe some of the self-actualization questions might be at work do my opinions seem to count are my co-workers committed to doing quality work do i have a best friend at work 
So what we do is every quarter we send a company the anonymous survey and all they're doing is putting in these results to these 12 questions and their manager's name. And then we can look at the results of that and compare them. And it's often really interesting seeing for seeing some trouble spots. You know, you can actually predict employee churn before it happens. Yeah. So this is a, a work in progress for re, uh, for listeners who want to learn more, who are fascinated to uh, to get involved and 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 read the the management handbook. Uh, give us a little teaser. What, what what's to expect? What what's upcoming? I, my understanding is that you're writing it in public a little bit, getting feedback. On you. Uh, wrap up with um, what to expect well writing a book is a great way of learning about something you know i've done this twice in the past i've written some o'reilly books and they even came to me and asked me can you write a book on coffee script and i hadn't even heard of coffee script but i <laughs> agreed to do it and, and and i published that and um it's the same with management i know a bit more about management than i did coffee script at the time but i i still have a ton more learning to do and so we're actually trying something different with this book. I'm writing it in Notion and we're then distributing it. So we've got about 500 people who are going through and writing comments. And it's, the book has got so much better uh, since we've got this incredible feedback loop going. So we're going to publish this book starting in March. And I would just follow me on Twitter if you want to know where to find that. I'm twitter.com slash McCaw, M-A-C-C-A-W. But... The book essentially will be published one chapter at a time, and then we will also publish a podcast with each chapter. And the first chapter is all about managing yourself. Awesome. Well, it's a, it's a great place to wrap. Uh, look forward to staying tuned for that podcast and, and hopefully having you again when, uh, when, when it's, when it's finished. Uh, my guest today has been Alex McCaw. Uh, uh, the book is Great CEO Within, the, the management handbook. Stay tuned and the company is Clearbit. Uh, thank you so much for coming Thanks on. Thanks so Alex. much. Appreciate awesome. It. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 